Entre nous, petit Bienvenue and welcome back to The Land of Desire, a podcast about the weird, wacky, and wonderful history of France. This episode will conclude our six-part series on the Dreyfus Affair, an epic tale of espionage, conspiracy, and political cover-up which rocked the nation of France for half a century. In the name of the French people, by a majority of five votes to two. Yes, the accused is guilty. The courtroom was silent. Alfred Dreyfus's lawyer, Edgar Demange, wept with his head in his hands. Four years earlier, he had been tasked with entering Alfred Dreyfus's jail cell to announce a guilty plea, and he could not he would not do so again. Fernand Laborie, who had fought against Edgar de Mange's tactics, took pity on the man, and he entered Alfred Dreyfus's jail cell himself. Dreyfus was quiet. Take care, he said, of my wife and my children. Who can even imagine the torment going through his mind? Once again, Alfred Dreyfus prepared himself for prison. Once again, he prepared himself for degradation from the army. When Matthew came to visit his brother's cell, Alfred's cool demeanor finally broke. I will never tolerate a new condemnation. I will not put on my uniform again. They will have to drag me out. They will take me there by force. He needn't have worried as at that moment the court-martials, who had just stripped him of his rank, unanimously decided to spare Dreyfus the indignity of another degradation ceremony. In other words, they were asking that the sentence they had just passed should not be carried out. You read between the lines. The world was furious and shocked and disgusted at France, the World's Fair was set to open in Paris later that year, and multiple international newspapers called for a boycott. At home, Dreyfus's friends and family scrambled for any opportunity to save Alfred's life, because everyone knew he would never survive another imprisonment. On the one hand, Prime Minister Waldeck Rousseau had maintained civil order in France, yet he was still a believer in Alfred Dreyfus's innocence and a personal friend of his lawyer, Edgar Demange. Immediately, Dreyfus supporters began calling for an immediate pardon. Yet, even Dreyfus's own friends struggled with such an idea. A pardon was not an acquittal. A pardon was an admission of guilt, a plea for forgiveness. How could Dreyfus ask to be forgiven of a crime he never committed? One by one, leading ministers had had enough, and one by one, they threatened to resign if Dreyfus wasn't offered a pardon. Here, at what was supposed to be the final loose end of a great national conflict, the judiciary, the legislature, and the executive branch all stood against the army and demanded mercy for Alfred Dreyfus. Finally, the order made its way to the desk of President Loubet, no doubt thinking of the anti-Dreyfus mob which had beaten him only months earlier, 
President Loubet signed the official pardon of Alfred Dreyfus on September 19, 1899. At long last, after four years and ten months, Alfred Dreyfus was free. That night, Alfred traveled to Nantes, where his devoted, heroic brother Matthew awaited him. Together, the two brothers traveled across France, besieged every step of the way by crowds of people, some curious, some furious. In the train station of Bordeaux, Alfred Dreyfus ate his first meal as a free man. Matthew recalls Alfred staring at the dining room and the silver on the table and the tablecloth as things to which he was no longer accustomed. Two days after beginning their journey together, Alfred Dreyfus stepped out of a car in Carpentras, a small village in southeastern France. As he stood up, the front door opened, and then, at last, the long dream was over. His family, his brother, his wife, his son, his daughter, and he was swept up into their embrace. Back in Paris, the idealists of the Dreyfus affair were furious. Dreyfus had been pardoned, but at what cost? Prime Minister Waldeck Rousseau was prepared to offer an amnesty to everyone in the military. As one historian put it, an amnesty that lumped together Picard and Mercier and treated identically the heroes and the criminals. Now that Alfred Dreyfus was no longer a noble symbol, but an actual human being, he too was attacked by those who had once been his strongest supporters as being insufficiently heroic for his own destiny. Perhaps the saddest alienation was that of Colonel Picard. Picard had stood on principle for so long, ready to sacrifice his life in the name of an ideal embodied by a man, a man who would not do the same for him. Yet, when Prime Minister Waldeck Rousseau unveiled his proposed amnesty, a recovering Alfred Dreyfus composed an address to the Senate, saying, I asked for no pardon. The right of the innocent is not clemency, but justice. Amnesty is a blow to my heart. But no one was listening anymore. When Emile Zola lambasted the Senate that you have done no more than change judges. Now you are being asked to say that there will be no more judges. No one was listening anymore. The traitorous, lying, villainous General Mercier was elected as a senator, and when the Dreyfus contingent briefly reunited in outrage, no one was listening anymore. Dreyfus's own lawyer, Fernand Laborie, described Dreyfus's acceptance of a pardon as an isolated and independent individual, not as a man gripped by humane concerns and aware of the beauty of social duty. He is acting purely as an individual, not as a member of the human collective. Dreyfus was crushed, but no one was listening anymore. The general amnesty passed. France was exhausted and ready to move on. That spring, the World's Fair opened in Paris, a country which had just spent four years spewing hatred against the intellectuals, the scientists, the artists, and the international community, 
now poured into Paris to be dazzled by inventions, experiments, art galleries, and visitors from around the world. And if anybody noticed the irony at the time, there's no record of it. In the first few years of the 20th century, the principal actors of the Dreyfus Affair fell away. August Schirer Kessner, the first powerful ally Matthew Dreyfus had known, he died first. Next came the military generals. Only nine months into the new century, Emile Zola and his wife lit a fire in their Paris home. The next morning, the fire brigade broke down the door to their bedroom, just in time to save Madame Zola from asphyxiation. But it was too late for the great Emile Zola. After hearing the news, Alfred Dreyfus left the safety of his rural retreat to hold the hand of Madame Zola and mourn the man without whom he would still be living on Devil's Island, if he were living at all. Zola was honored with a state funeral, and the great writer Anatole France conducted the eulogy, saying, Let us envy him. He has honored his country and the world with an immense body of work and a great deed. Let us envy him, his destiny and his courage combined to endow him with the greatest of fates. He was a moment in the conscience of humanity. While the world forgot about Alfred Dreyfus, he took that opportunity to collect, at long last, the evidence in his favor so scrupulously hidden away for so many years. When a new left-wing minister of war, General André, promised to conduct one final investigation of the military's files, he found an unexpected new witness, Félix Gribelon close friend of Commandant Henry and, for the past 20 years, archivist at the section of statistics. As one historian noted, he had become truthful with age. Gribelon had always been a diligent archivist, making copies of documents at the moment they were first received. By guiding the new Minister of War through the archives, Gribelon uncovered copies of the original pieces of evidence used against Dreyfus before they were forged and copied and pasted together. The new discoveries gave Dreyfus grounds for one last appeal. The stormy sea, as one contemporary wrote, had calmed into a peaceful lake. The famous judges and lawyers of previous trials had all retired or passed away, leaving a new generation of courtroom officials with little personal investment in a decade-old case. A brief preliminary hearing finally reunited Alfred Dreyfus, Fernand Laborie, and Colonel Picard, but the event received little coverage in the press. On March 7, 1904, the Criminal Court of Appeals opened its final investigation of the case of Alfred Dreyfus. This time, no possible claim could be made of affairs of state. What could the evidence possibly do to threaten national security ten years later? What could it do to harm the reputation of the army, which, let's be honest, had already been irrevocably stained? No, this time, the criminal court would know everything. The familiar cast of characters returned, but this time, they were subdued even resigned. Generals Mercier and Boisdeff 
were only shadows of their former selves. Alfred Dreyfus spoke in his own defense, but once again he was as strangely dispassionate and emotionless as before. These players, all part of a game which had stretched on longer than anyone could have imagined, moved through the motions as though in a dream. Before wrapping up the final session, the criminal court produced two new reports. The first report examined the state secrets which had originally been mentioned in the infamous Bordereau. These were the actual documents that the spy was passing to the German embassy. As it turned out, according to the military itself, Alfred Dreyfus couldn't possibly have had access to the state secrets which were traded to the German embassy. This conclusion was based on no new evidence, simply a thorough examination of the classified material and who would have had access to it at the time. This should have been conducted before Alfred Dreyfus was ever arrested. The second report, prepared by a series of eminent scientists, formally denounced the handwriting theories of Alphonse Bertillon as, quote, the absurdity of the system is evident. The criminal court prepared to give its final verdict, as the right wing of France suffered tremendous setbacks in the national elections. As one historian wrote, De Roulette and all of his followers had almost given up their insults, as though they had lost all energy or hope. The inflexible Cavagnac died in September 1905. General Mercier was no more than a phantom haunting the Senate. The hour of justice could be sounded. It would disturb no one. In his final arguments, the public prosecutor took a look at the half-empty courtroom, once overflowing with witnesses, members of the public, and reporters, and he paid homage to those who had contributed to this moment and had not lived to see its final conclusion. On July 12, 1906, the presiding judge of the criminal court gave its final verdict. In the final analysis of the accusation against Dreyfus, there is nothing that remains standing. After 12 years, it was over. Dreyfus was acquitted. All previous verdicts against him were annulled, and he was officially not only a free man, but an innocent man. That night, Dreyfus went home to his friends and family for a celebratory dinner. Three weeks later, he was officially restored to the military as a squadron chief. If you can believe it, miserable old General Mercier, withering away in the Senate, actually had the nerve to protest Alfred Dreyfus's reinstatement into the army. After a moment of stunned silence, the rest of the Senate exploded into righteous anger, reminding Mercier of his very good luck at not being in jail himself. In that same session, the Senate voted to transfer the remains of Emile Zola to the Pantheon to join the great heroes of France. Later that summer, Alfred Dreyfus received the Legion of Honor. In the courtyard of the military academy, near the spot where he had been degraded and expelled from the army so many years ago, 
Alfred Dreyfus arrived in full military dress. The officers present welcomed him as one of their own. As the ceremony began and the trumpets blared and a general stepped forward to conduct the ceremony, Alfred Dreyfus grew dizzy, tossed back in time to that terrible day. My mind, disoriented, took flight, reawakening the dormant memories of 12 years before, the roaring crowd, the atrocious ceremony, my decorations stripped from me, my saber broken and lying in pieces, scattered at my feet. All of a sudden, the general cried out, in the name of the President of the Republic, and by virtue of the powers invested in me, I hereby name you Knight of the Legion of Honor. The general pinned the cross onto Dreyfus's uniform, and then he pulled Alfred close and embraced him. From the sidelines, Dreyfus was surrounded by cheering officers, his wife, Lucy, and Colonel Picard. After the ceremony, Dreyfus approached Colonel Picard, at last able to convey, even without words, his gratitude for everything the colonel had done for him. Colonel Picard smiled, and he shook Alfred's hand. They would never meet again. In the years to come, Colonel Picard became Minister of War. He died in 1914 after a horseback riding accident, and he received a state funeral. Trustworthy, steady Edgar de Mange received no reward for his years of service in the Dreyfus affair, except a sterling reputation and the endless love of the Dreyfus family. He died at his desk in 1925, working until his last day to defend the accused. Fernand Laborie continued an illustrious legal career and was eventually elected president of the Paris Bar by his fellow lawyers. Meanwhile, General Boisdeff faded into a shadow of himself before dying in 1919. Commandant Patty Duclam, so traitorous to his nation in peacetime, redeemed himself in wartime, displaying glorious courage and authority in World War I before succumbing to his injuries. General Mercier, the kind of miserable old man who lives forever, finally passed away at the age of 88 after a mediocre career in the Senate. In August 1923, while Alfred Dreyfus restarted life after war in Paris, an article appeared in a local British newspaper noting the death of Count Jean de Valmont. This man, rumored to be a traveling salesman, was very rich and very disliked. This mysterious count spent his final days in loneliness avoided by the locals who didn't trust him, not one bit. Shortly after the Legion of Honor ceremony, Alfred Dreyfus retired to a life of stamp collecting and entertaining his grandchildren. Not many years later, Alfred came out of retirement to fight in World War I, where he served bravely and fought in major battles. During World War I, France finally recovered from the original War of 1870, beating Germany and retrieving Alfred's homeland, Alsace-Lorraine, once again. Returning home as a war hero, Alfred devoted his later years to his memoirs and to taking long walks around Paris. I can still see him, wrote one grandson many years later, 
Fragile, stooped over, nervous, walking rapidly, his large pocket watch always within reach. Finally, on July 12, 1935, Alfred Dreyfus gently passed away at the old age of 75, surrounded by his family. I'd like to tell you that this is where the story ends, with Alfred Dreyfus reinstated in the army, his reputation restored, safe at home with his family, passing away at an old age, and that the cultural divide of the last 10 years was finally resolved. But that would be a lie. The nasty, monstrous anti-Semitism of the Dreyfus affair didn't go away. It merely went underground. And 40 years later, the French only needed a little bit of kindling to light the fires of hatred again. The Nazis invaded France, and Alfred's beloved country was annexed. Nazis directly occupied the northern half of the nation, including Paris, leaving the southern half of the nation to be ruled by a French government, which was now based in the town of Vichy. The Nazis may have encouraged anti-Semitism, but even they were surprised by how quickly the citizens of France adopted Nazi restrictions on Judaism, and how easily the Vichy government parroted the words coming out of Hitler's mouth. Suddenly, the old curses from Commandant Henry's memorial campaign were heard in the streets of Paris once more. Lucy Dreyfus, along with her children and grandchildren, fled their family home for Toulouse, located in the so-called Free Zone of France. They found no shelter there. The French government was only too happy to carry out the Nazi regime's brutal measures. The French government set up a general commission on Jewish affairs, in charge of tasks like taking money and property from French Jews, including Lucy Dreyfus. This commission was headed by none other than the son of Commandant Petit de Clam, and one can only guess at his feelings when he stole over 20,000 francs from Lucy Dreyfus. Most of the family escaped to the United States, though Lucy, now in her 70s, was too old to travel overseas. Lucy's life in rural France was rough, but it was nothing compared to the horror overtaking her old neighborhood in Paris. On June 16, 1942, Parisian police rounded up 13,152 Jewish people, a figure which included 5,800 women and 4,000 children. The Jewish prisoners were forced into the Veldiv, a popular sports arena right next to the Eiffel Tower. Inside, the windows were screwed shut and the temperature rose quickly. For the 13,000 Jewish prisoners, there were exactly zero bathrooms. For the next five days, the only food and water they received was delivered by the Quakers and the International Red Cross. On June 21st, the Jewish prisoners were shipped to Drancy, an internment camp just outside Paris city limits. A week later, they were sent to Auschwitz. A few months after the roundup in Paris, the Nazis decided to stop delaying the inevitable and they occupied the entire nation of France. Lucy fled Toulouse again, 
though her granddaughter, Madeline, insisted on staying behind to help the resistance smuggle more Jews out of France. Meanwhile, Lucy spent the remainder of the war hiding in a convent. In her last years on Earth, Lucy watched the children and grandchildren whom Alfred Dreyfus had so dearly loved, the children whose memory kept him alive on Devil's Island, flee across the ocean or die in concentration camps staffed by their fellow countrymen. Lucy and Alfred's beloved granddaughter, Madeline, was not the victim of Nazi Germany. She was arrested by French police and deported to the French concentration camp of Jancy. On November 23, 1943, Madeline was transferred to Auschwitz, along with 83 young children whom she cared for on the journey. Three months after arriving in Auschwitz, Madeline died of typhus at the age of 22. She weighed less than 70 pounds. After the liberation of France, Lucy returned to Paris, only to find it empty of the Jewish friends and family who had once lived there. Of the 42,000 Jews sent from France to Auschwitz, only 811 returned to France at the end of the war. If it seems amazing to think that modern France could heal after the anti-Semitic fury and violence of her last 50 years, consider how easy it is to create peace when one half of the fight is expelled or exterminated. A few months after the end of the war, Lucy Dreyfus died at the age of 76 and is now buried next to Alfred. The name of Madeline, her beloved granddaughter, is etched onto their gravestone. Her body was never recovered. In 1985, the 100th anniversary of Alfred Dreyfus's degradation ceremony, the French Minister of Culture commissioned a statue of Alfred Dreyfus to be placed at the Military Academy at the site of his original degradation ceremony. A Polish Jewish architect who had been forced to flee his studies in Paris when World War II broke out received the commission. Upon the statue's completion, the military commander of the French Armed Forces rejected the statue and vetoed its placement on the school grounds. The statue ended up in the Tuileries Gardens, where the public complained that it was, quote, troubling and too political. Finally, Alfred Dreyfus's statue was moved across the river, where the mayor of Paris, Jacques Chirac, gave a rousing dedication speech. Immediately after the speech, Dreyfus's statue was defaced. In response to this, the French military released an official statement 101 years after the fact declaring Alfred Dreyfus innocent of any crime. On the 100th anniversary of Alfred Dreyfus's rehabilitation into the French army and the end of the affair, France gathered together the living descendants of Emile Zola and Alfred Dreyfus on the same spot where Dreyfus had been stripped of his rank, the same space where his statue had been denied. The statue has never moved to its intended location. Throughout the ceremony, and to this day, Alfred Dreyfus's statue is hidden in a tiny, out-of-the-way park, facing the ruins of the Cherche Midi prison, where Alfred waited to learn his fate. The buildings on this spot are condemned, 
They are overgrown with weeds, and like the statue which stares from across the street, it is forgotten. The forces which drove France to imprison an innocent man and incite violence throughout the country are all around us, even today. Anti-Semitic imagery and violence is on the rise throughout Europe and the United States. In June of this year, a white supremacist assassinated a member of the British Parliament, Joe Cox, shouting, this is for Britain. Neo-Nazi online harassment is widespread online, and I don't just mean name-calling, I mean stalking, death threats, hacking personal accounts and sharing information. Swastika graffiti has been sweeping the nation for the last week. And according to the French Ministry of the Interior, 51% of last year's racial attacks targeted Jews. In 1898, Emile Zola wrote in J'accuse that anti-Semitism was, quote, the scourge of our time. To fight back in our own time, please consider donating to the Anti-Defamation League at www.adl.org, which works to fight anti-Semitism and bigotry around the world. You may also consider donating to the American Civil Liberties Union at aclu.org, which protects the rights of the accused so that all American citizens receive their right to a fair and honest trial. That's it, everybody. You did it. It took six episodes and a long, long time, but we have finally wrapped up our mini-series on the Dreyfus Affair. Just to give all of you a heads up, I am going to be taking what I think is a very well-deserved vacation uh, starting next week. So the next episode is going to come out a little bit later than normally scheduled. I'm hoping to get it out in three weeks instead of the normal two. I am so sorry to leave you all waiting a little bit longer until the next episode, but until then, I will throw some really great reading material onto the podcast website at www.thelandofdesire.com, as well as the Land of Desire Facebook page, to give all of you a little something to occupy your mind while you wait for the next episode. For those of you who don't already know, my name is Diana, and this is a one-woman show. I write, research, and produce every episode. This week, I've added some final materials on the show's website at www.thelandofdesire.com. This material includes photographs of the Dreyfus family, as well as further reading on the Dreyfus affair and the rise of 21st century anti-Semitism. If you enjoyed today's show, please help me spread the word by rating and reviewing the show on iTunes and mentioning the show on social media, including Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, or even Reddit. Thanks so much for your support, and I hope you all join me again in slightly more than two weeks for the next installment of The Land of Desire.